I almost miss the anxiety I used to feel. Every single time you obviously have a certain apprehension of like, oh man, I, this is gonna be crazy. But you also kind of in the back of your mind know that your parachute's gonna open and the landing's gonna suck. It's gonna be kind of uncomfortable, but that you'll largely be okay. There's I- injuries inherent to that as there are in any activity. But you know, now that I know what I'm doing, it's really demonstrated to me the extent to which I have engaged a fear and, and basically beaten it. This is Show Your Business Who's Boss. Listen in on behind the scenes, unfiltered conversations with my favorite business owner friends who take charge and make their businesses work for them. Don't just be your own boss. Show your business who's boss. I'm Pia Silva. It's getting personal, guys. Today's guest is my good friend and ex-boyfriend, actually, Captain Jesse Summer. Jesse is a command judge advocate and paratrooper in the U.S. Army, and he just got back last week from another tour in Afghanistan where he actually got COVID. So we're very happy to have him back stateside, safe and sound. He's also a JD MBA, small business owner, and as you'll hear, a bit of an accolade whore with a 20-year life plan unlike anything I've seen anywhere else. Jesse and I spent a couple of years together at Wesleyan University and then a couple of years after college scheming ways to make the world a better place. And though we've taken quite different paths to get where we are today, we've remained very good friends. In this conversation, we cover topics such as a different approach to personal growth than the one we usually talk about here. Hint, it involves jumping out of planes in the dark with a parachute that may or may not open. How true leaders understand their responsibility for those under their command. And the benefits of having a crystal clear life goal. And how Jesse's inspires him to jump out of bed each morning, even or especially when he's purposefully being starved and sleep deprived during various army trainings. I had no idea how much personal growth existed in the army, but it does. And this is a fun one. So buckle up. Here we go. Can you hear me? Yeah. You can hear me now? Yeah, I can hear you. Can, and you can hear me? I can. Well, all right. We'll just Man, do it here. That, that oh, just goes I'm to show how, how like out of it I've been that I'm, this is the first time I've ever used Zoom. I've never, I've never seen this interface before. Wow. Well, it's pretty easy. That's why everyone likes it. Yeah. In fact, now that I'm seeing this, this is probably, this is probably the first time I've even seen you in, God, I don't even know how long. Um, no. You, you FaceTimed me to show me your guns. That's right. Yeah, wow. Well, it's just suddenly, I suddenly realized why people are saying, yeah, I'm never going into the office again. I have so many yeah. questions. First of all, I want to know everything that's happened since I last spoke to you when you were still here. So how are you doing? Like, how long have you been gone? It was like seven and a half months. Oh my God. And I'm doing well now, but I can't describe to you how surreal my last seven and a half months were followed by how surreal it has been being home. Like when I first got home and I would walk into a store, I would want to take a picture of everyone wearing masks. Right. But that's just normal. That's right. like, that's not a thing now. That's, that's everywhere. Oh my God, and that must be so creepy. Pia, I can't, I can't tell you. It's like I walk into conversations that I have no frame of reference for. And, and I was aware that this thing was going on. I got COVID. I was in Afghanistan and I got COVID, but it was just a completely different, it was all within the surreality of being deployed. So coming back here, 
it's like really strange or just even being in a store where they have the six feet of separation lines on the ground. I mean, it, and, and some of it strikes me as a little hysterical, right? Like it just on a logical level, it doesn't yeah. necessarily seem that those remedies would work in the aggregate, but I realize that they're not necessarily supposed to stop the spread so much as slow it. It still, however, is such a fundamental change in what I remember America being that, I mean, it's, it's strange that that's what I've returned to. And, and you know, and that de- our deployment was, was really bizarre, right? We, we got to Afghanistan and within two weeks there was a there was an attack where we lost two of our dudes and seven others were wounded and that was kind of you know certainly changed the tenor of us being there it was a pretty dramatic situation and then like two weeks after that the there was this reduction in violence an agreement that was supposed to reduce violence to see whether or not a peace treaty could even be effectuated and then a week later after the taliban had shown that they could control their their people on the battlefield to the extent that they treaty or a ceasefire a more permanent US government and the Taliban that didn't even include the Afghan government was signed and all of a sudden we were no longer fighting we were just watching the Taliban engage the Afghan forces but at, at reduced levels and they weren't touching us anymore and then covid hit and that changed our interactions with our partner forces the Afghan uh, military forces obviously significantly as we were trying to protect us forces from getting it i nonetheless got covid how did you get it and who else don't got know, it don't know but uh, it it did go you know it, it kind of ripped through the us forces footprint and before i knew it i was in a quarantine facility with a bunch of other people who infuriatingly showed no symptoms while i was becoming so dehydrated at night through my you know horrendous night sweats that i would wake up in the morning and faint so that was oh God. really unpleasant. For how it's the long? Sickest I, it's six days of like a sustained 102 degree fever. Oh my God. It's the sickest you've been ever? Sickest I've ever been. But then on the seventh day, I was fine. I mean, that was what was so really? strange about it, that, that I had low blood oxygen levels and a, and a headache, muscle aches, a bit of a cough. I was just sick, right? And then You're all so of a lucky. sudden- yeah. You're fine I, now. I you look fine now. You don't have any symptoms I, now? I feel I feel fine. Yeah. No, I don't I have no symptoms and I don't I hope that there hasn't there isn't oh any lingering effect, but I would even say and this is <laughs> I think this is somewhat a tendency of of our species anyway. Like mm-hmm. now that I'm no longer sick right now, I'm mm-hmm. like what's the big if and deal? <laughs> well, also you're supposedly immune too. I hope. I, I've also heard stories suggesting well, though, that this thing is, is mutating fast enough that, that immunity may be, you know, fleeting. But at least for the moment, yeah, I'm like, a, I'm like an X-Men. I have superpowers <laughs> of being immune to it. Well, anyway, it remains because so much of what I want to do is back in my hometown of Albany. It still is kind of weird that I'm in the Army. It's never stopped being this anthropological journey through a culture that was completely alien to my home environment and upbringing. I know. And you've been in it for so long. How long have you been there? Eight, so I've been in the army for eight years, which, which God. I did not anticipate at all. It just ended up being so much more fun than I ever could have imagined. You know, like by trade, I'm an attorney. In the army, I'm an attorney who gets to jump out of planes. That, that has a, yeah. a, a, like an a appeal to it. Tell us. 
Tell us the good stuff. Okay, so I remember when you went in and you had to do basic training. You did serious basic training. You yeah. looked like you were like ripped. You looked crazy. <laughs> So there was, there's a couple things. First of all, I would say that I, that was just a really strategic use of Facebook and the photos that I wanted to, to disseminate to people. In other words, <laughs> okay. from my perspective, it's like, why join the army if you can't show people that you've joined the army? Uh-huh. So I will say that, you know, it's, it's within the, it's, it's keep in mind, you know, it's within the context of being an attorney. My basic training was with other judge advocates, right? Other people who are responsible for advising on the law. That said, yes, I did get ripped because the difference was my experience as a lawyer was just sitting behind a desk dealing with environmental commercial litigation matters. In the army, any athletic activity I was doing was a thousand percent more than what I was doing outside of the army. Actually, one of the things about the army that I love so much about it, that physical fitness and athleticism is baked into the, 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 the military occupational specialty, your MOS. So, you know, whether you're a network specialist or whether you're a paralegal, a part of your job is to maintain your physique and physical fitness. Mm -hmm. And, and, where when I come back back to America and the obesity epidemic is a national security concern, there is a part of me that, that thinks, you know, that the military has it right. You know, that, that emphasis on self-maintenance potentially to a fault, I'll, I'll concede, you know, maybe there's, there's not necessarily the training to avoid injury you can really hurt yourself. And I have multiple times. Yeah, yeah. But, but, you know, when I have people to whom I have the benefit of, of access, you know, there's been like a lot of benefits to it. I definitely would not be able to run as fast as I do now or lift as much or just have an overall sense of how to create that balance so that I'm dedicating time to keeping myself healthy unless I were in the army. And, and that's hopefully on the other side, one thing I want to take with me is like figuring out how to incorporate athleticism and physical fitness into my routine. I just had not done that effectively before. I will say that as it's hard, it is harder. I mean, let me, it may not be hard for you. You seem to be someone who has always kind of had a sense for balance, but balance is definitely not that? something... Well, I mean, you've, you've been able to do a lot and, and I, I kind of remember like, correct me if I'm wrong, but you were very active, like whether it was dance or didn't you get into yoga at one point? Like, yeah, I'm I, super intense about it to a fault. Oh, that's interesting. So, yes, right. If you're super intense about that though, the problem is that some people are super intense about video games and it's very hard to find influences in society that are stressing that balance. And it's very easy to find access to those activities that keep you kind of sedentary on a couch, as opposed to getting you out to the yoga studios. Yoga is expensive. And I, I just think that unfortunately, we don't really have a cultural means of making that a priority for people, you know, of making that, that balance eating right. It's so hard to eat right here. That's the other thing that I forgot, like having come here back to America you know, I'm like, my God, you have to have some, you have to have time, money, and most importantly, dramatic willpower to eat right. And because they feed I mean, you there, because you don't yeah, have to they, think about it. You don't have to think about it. And after a while, because you're spending so much time working out, 
it just, you know, it's self-defeating, right? You wouldn't end up going out of your way to eat the bullshit. Well, I mean, what you're really talking about is self-discipline. Self-discipline is hard. It's actually not inaccessible to do yoga, for example. We have found in quarantine, you can do almost anything. Sophie was staying with us last week on her way back to London, and she was telling us that her brother... I forget what she called it. She was like, yeah, he got like, like prison bod or something. You know, some people in quarantine decided, oh, well, I'm going to get ripped because I'm home. It's just discipline and it's really hard to have discipline. So it's not that video games are easier because they're more accessible. It's video games are easier because you don't need discipline to play them. I mean, if you just think about the words like prison body or discipline, (laughs) like even the words that we use are ones of like, you know, this is, this is the application of punitive force on yourself, you know, uh-huh. punish yourself to be healthy and happy. Right. And that's, you know, it's like very counterintuitive. Right. Like I, my, my job, I'm, I'm part of what's called the special staff to a commander. So as a, in my capacity as a command legal advisor or an operational law attorney, that's partially what I'm supposed to be doing is advising the commander on his or her use of force. So every time that there's going to be some sort of lethal application of, of force. They call their lawyer. Yeah, pretty much, right? To make wow. sure that it's, it's not straying outside of the realm of what's a permissible use of force on the battlefield. So if there are uses of force that are increasingly, now I wouldn't say questionable, but fraught, right? Then those decisions get withheld higher and higher up the, the food chain. So for example, in, in Afghanistan, if you are going to make a questionable call, there's always a, a rationale to get buy-in. And so you'll have a bunch of attorneys talking to one another and, and commanders, you know, ultimately making that final decision. Wow. But the point is, is that at some point I'm going to return to the civilian world, especially when what I'm doing in the army stops being as fun, right? You know, if I, if my job because of age or responsibility is inherent to rank, stop affording me the access to be out in the field with, you know, the combat arms branches, do training with them, participate in airborne operations to kind of play soldier and extend my summer camp of life, then that's probably the time at which I would say, okay, I'm taking everything that I've learned here organizationally and otherwise, and go back to, you know, being a civilian, going back to Albany. Yes. Your favorite (laughs) place. Wait, uh, you still jump out of planes? Yeah. Yep. Oh, you I've still got, do it. I've got 10 more jumps until this kind of meaningless status that really is important to me. It's called the Master Parachutist Badge. And at that point, I will have reached the heights of the, you know, being distinguished for jumping out of planes. <laughs> and, and at that point, I'll probably say, okay, it's not worth the, the damage to my knees that I'm inflicting every time I, I jump. Really? Why? Because you land hard? Yeah, you land hard. I mean, the, it's, it's not... There are, two, there are a few different types of jumping in the Army. And so you'll have members of the special ops community. They will do like military free fall. So military free fall, there's a couple different types of military free fall activities. I, I, I'll spare you the details, but the point is that you have parachutes that you are able to control by design. That's part of the, you know, the tactical benefit of military free fall operations. I'm a static line jump master. So with static lines, you're attached to the plane. And when you jump out, the static line that's connected to your parachute is on a, it's connected to the plane. So your momentum opens your chute and you're only falling for about six seconds. And then your parachute opens 
And if it doesn't, then obviously you have to pull your reserve. But that's, you know, a rarity by design. Wait, you mean you're only free falling for six seconds? Yeah, you're only, yes, that's right. You're only free falling for six seconds. And then it's about a 40 second descent. To give you an idea of how low we are, you know, you're basically three quarters up the way on the, uh, of the Empire State Building. So you're really close to the ground. It's only a thousand feet, a little bit higher, you know, generally about 1200 feet. Like 80 floors? Yeah. How many floors? Yeah. Sure. Okay. Well, that's pretty high. Oh yeah. I mean, don't get me wrong. It's, it's high enough that your parachute has time to open, but to right. give you, to give you right. this. But you're, kind not, of, you're not going skydiving. That's right. The oh. first, but the first five jumps that I had at airborne school, each was more traumatic than the last. And it's so, I, I just realized it, I mean, it was totally jumper error. I didn't know what I was doing. And so, <gasps> it, and I'll just say at the outset, it's amazing how much can go wrong and yet you're still more or less fine. But like the first time that I exited the plane, I got to the door and was like, what? <laughs> and hit the side of the plane on my exit. <gasps> the second time I jumped out and the jumper on the other side of the plane, you know, neither of us had jumped far enough out. And so her parachute began opening underneath me. And so I was basically on top of her parachute and it was collapsing around me until it finally fully opened and it like, you know, kind of snapped me off of it. But that was terrifying. The third jump, I think the third jump is when I ended up in the hospital <laughs> because oh I landed, God. I landed in this de- kind of a depression on the drop zone and hit my tailbone to an extent that I've never before replicated. And it was a nightmare. And there was also, there was also some other, <laughs> some other aspect to that. I'll just say very quickly, you're not supposed to be wearing contact lenses when you jump. I may or may not have been, and they may or may not have popped out based on the impact of how hit how hard I hit the ground in which oh my you know, God. The, the result would have been if this happened and I'm not representing that it did, but had it uh-huh. happened, I would have then been blind on the field and not been able to tell anyone because I'm not supposed to have been, haven't been wearing contacts. And then my not fourth, supposed to wear a con. So what are you supposed to wear glasses? Yep. Probably for the exact reason that I just described all of which is hypothetical. Given right. That this of course. You definitely. I've never known you to break any rules. And then let's see, on the fourth jump, you have combat equipment, right? You've got your rifle and you've got this rucksack filled with, you know, equipment and you're supposed to release it, right? You're supposed to drop it from you. So it hits the ground first. It's on a string. It's, there's some degree of control, but the point is that you're not supposed to just ride it into the ground. And I, after those three prior traumatic jumps, the last thing I was thinking about were the duties incumbent on me. And I just burned right into the ground with them. And the rifle, which was strapped to my side, popped up and hit me in the head (gasps) and on impact. And that that sucked. (laughs) And then the last one, which was the worst one by far, these parachutes, which are called T-11 parachutes, the type of, of parachute that you jump with when you're in the conventional army community. They have these gigantic slits in the side. So you know, kind of think in the origami structure of you've got a back panel and then four panels that come off of each square side. And so there are corner vents in the parachute. And they tell you in the, the, you know, the rehearsal before each airborne operation, they tell you that if you're approaching a corner vent, you spread your arms, you spread your legs, you make yourself big and so that you don't slip through the corner vent. Well, this was a night jump and I couldn't really see. And I also was at that point just happy that my parachute had opened at that point. And I immediately 
collided with another jumper and slipped through a corner vent. <gasps> and what you then learn, as I learned, is that both of your parachutes have significant lift, right? Still lift capability. And so while I was freaking out and probably exacerbating the situation during the entire descent, I landed fine. No problem. I was, I survived and it, it was actually probably a- inside the other person's- Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Were Hardcore. they like, what the fuck, Jesse? <laughs> Uh, they, <laughs> oh, oh yeah. I think, I think both of us were, I mean, I would love, I wish there were like, you know, aud- at least audio evidence of our shrieks the entire way down. Oh it was awesome. God. It was awesome. Oh. Definitely no noise discipline. If, if it had been an actual <laughs> operation, I'm <laughs> sure we would have been picked out of the sky pretty quickly. Oh my uh, God. But that was my first five jumps. And that was, I mean, that was 50 jumps ago, you know, jumps in, ago. Yeah, so I've jumped out 55 times, and it's never been like that since. You, 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 once you know what to expect, in fact, you find that it's one of the easiest things that you can do in the Army. If you're willing to invest the time in waiting to jump, then you know, all you have to do is just let your parachute open and have gravity continue its normal operation, and that's, that's about the extent of your engagement. The theory behind it is it's the fastest way to get large amounts of supplies and troops on a battlefield, but it's probably increasingly less practical in any modern sense because there would just be, you know, you probably wouldn't be jumping into battle. At at best, you'd be jumping into support an area that was already cleared. And nowadays, I can't really imagine, I can't really imagine a practical application of it, but I'm sure there are some strategic planner somewhere who emphasize why we would need that capability in a last ditch scenario. And what I will say in terms of supporting the justification for airborne operations training is that I became a different person after airborne school. It introduced me to a fear complex that had never been triggered. And it it started the process of having me, you know, engage it. Like, when I jump out of a plane now, I almost miss the anxiety I used to feel. Every single time, you obviously have a certain apprehension of like, oh, man, I, this is going to be crazy. But you also kind of in the back of your mind know that your parachute's going to open and the landing's going to suck. It's going to be kind of uncomfortable, but that you'll largely be okay. There's I- injuries inherent to that as there are in any activity. But you know, now that I know what I'm doing, it's it's, it's, it's really demonstrated to me the extent to which I have engaged a fear and, and basically beaten it. And I think the, the most immediate example of where this has had a true impact on me as a person was there was like a, a rope swing once over the lake that I'd never touched when I was a child. And it didn't even occur to me that it would be an obstacle when my second year in the army, I came home, went up to the lake, jumped on this rope swing. It was just no fear, you know? Wow. Yeah. And so I think that that, that, that type of training is critical for, for anyone in, especially in the army, it really, you know, it, it gives you techniques to at the very least be logically or intellectually aware that you can overcome the way you're feeling and that you kind of have to. Wow. That is incredible. So you, you can't access that fear, but obviously you were very fearful when you first started. Oh my God! Are you kidding me? By the I I presume if you look at some of the messages home, I pr- I thought I was saying goodbye to my family on like the third or fourth jump. By that point, I was like identifying what of my belongings was going to go to whom. 
Whereas now I like, I, you know, there, I, I, I forget to even mention to someone that, you know, I'm, I'm going to be jumping that, that day or that week or whatnot. Yeah. Um, it, it seems like there's a lot of opportunity for it to go wrong in the beginning. Yeah, there are. And it does. It goes wrong. It goes wrong even for people who have, who have done it a, a hundred times, right? Yeah. I mean, it's still, it's still an inherently dangerous activity. I guess my point is that, and something I've, I've stressed to my mother uh, before if you just look at the statistics, I'm more likely to be injured on my drive to work in the morning right. than I am in an airborne operation. And that's, that's, that's remarkable. I mean, across the United States military, at the very least the Army, I think it's something like there are hundreds of thousands of jumps per year. And I, I think it's only like two or three deaths. I mean, you know, I, I don't have the numbers, but at least that's my impression of what I've heard before. Yeah. Wow. That's amazing. So... I mean, it's a very different application and arguably a, a much more visceral and uh, probably more powerful application of something that oddly I talk about on this show like every episode <laughs> because the concept of facing a fear and then getting over it and then realizing later like, oh, I'm like literally not even realizing that that's scary anymore is so powerful and it makes it... it it prepares you to do bigger things that probably weren't even on your radar before. And you're talking about something that, I mean, I can't even fathom the idea of jumping out of a plane. I'm like, not interested, not even going to pretend, don't want to do it. And don't feel scared. Don't feel like a scaredy cat either. Just don't, <laughs> like, not interested. Well, there's a couple things that I'll just say really quickly because yeah. having listened to some of the, the podcasts, I'll tell you where it has a direct nexus to the themes of this show. And that is what I've just described to you is rote training. Mm -hmm. You know, when you have repetition and habit, you start to acclimate to the feeling of being scared and understanding how to adjust it. But there is so much of a role for the leader of the chalk. Chalk is the, you know, the, the line of paratroopers that are going to jump out the door. So I'm a jump master and when I've, when I've, you know, led an airborne op or served as what's called a safety, where I'm the one that they're handing the static line off to before they jump out, it is incredible how much control I have over their emotional state simply by smiling. So these are generally younger dudes. And, every, you know, obviously they're afraid. And I was once just as terrified. And <clears throat> when you are with people, who have a shared mission, it becomes so much easier to jump out of that, that door. And when you are with a leader or someone in a position of kind of authority or responsibility who encourages you with just a friendly reminder that it's going to be okay, it changes the entire tone of the mission. So if you've got a jump master who's freaking out, who's not stable, or who doesn't necessarily have a social predisposition towards niceties, then it's going to make the, it's oh gonna make the jump a little more fraught. But when I'm the safety and I'm walking up to each person as like, you know, the doors open and it's loud and everything's chaotic and I'm walking through and I'm making jokes to them or kind of smiling as I just check their, you know, equipment one more time. And then I tell them, Hey, you know, look at me. And I'm making kind of like a, even a, a, a wink every time they, they hand off their static line. I've seen, the look of terror on, on, a, on a dude's face also kind of like break for a second with a smile. And I know that, that I've had jump masters like that 
that were critical in those early jumps after I'd gotten out of airborne school. And that was the only experience I had behind me. As soon as I got to the 82nd Airborne Division, where everyone jumps, everyone's much more or less acclimated to it. All of a sudden, that, that tenor of calm changed the experience for me. And so, you know, when you are put in a position of leadership, one thing I will take away from it is an awareness of like how much the environment is impacting, you know, the people with whom I'm working. And so I can be a counterbalance to any stresses that exist there, or I can exacerbate them. That's just the reality of, you know, being in a position of influence, tone, tenor, personality, especially when it comes to politics. I think that's, that's what we need in people. Now, I'm not saying that I would be potentially good at that in all contexts. I'm as neurotic and flamboyant and um, excitable as anyone. But I will say that there is a sense of, you know, when you've got someone who is stable and calm and able to, to kind of create that environment, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's, it's critical. And I, I won't comment too much on it right now, but I will just say you can, you can tell where you have leaders in civilian society who don't try to create a general calm. Society responds accordingly. Mm-hmm. That, you know, the higher up that influence probably the more important it is to just be able to sincerely smile, you know? Mm-hmm. I can imagine you being really good at that. that sounds, yeah, I mean, it's, yeah. as, long as, I mean, as, long as I, as long as I don't lose my temper, right? I mean, one of the things that the army, the army, uh, the army has offered me is a way of diluting myself into my own sense of status. And so, you know, one of the things you have to rem- keep, keep in mind is that because I'm extended the benefit of rank, you can't abuse it, right? Like it's only a fiction that, that, you know, someone is higher up. That's all the hierarchical system in the army is designed to, to make more expedient the transmission of directives. But if you start kidding yourself as to the fact that my rank means I'm like smarter than other people, mm-hmm. you know, you can be a dick. And there have been definitely times where fortunately right now I've got a paralegal that I, I totally admire. I mean, just a brilliant guy. And I've deputized him with informing me when I'm just being a dick. Uh-huh. <laughs> and does he? All the time. Oh my God. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, there, there's, you know, there's like, you, need, you know, you need someone that you trust who can check you on it. Because <clears throat> sometimes, yeah. sometimes things have to be done a certain way. And sometimes they have to be done right now. My general tendency is to think that it has to be done my way at this exact moment all the time. And the mm. reality is that almost never is the case. Mm-hmm. And you also have racked up all the accolades, right? I briefly remember you going around being like, I think I'm going to try to get that one and this one. And that's why you started jumping in the first place. I thought. Yes. I've, I, so the funny thing is, and this just goes to show, though, the, the limitations of ego, I tried to get every single accolade you could get in the army. I just, I had so much fun. You know, there was air assault, jump master school, obviously was airborne. I did all of these things. And there was only one that really, in my view, mattered. And that was ranger school. And I injured myself during my my endeavor. And so I do not have a ranger tab. And the funny thing about having invested so much significance in that tab is that when I look at my uniform and given my own kind of personality predisposition, I don't see any of what I've achieved. I only see the missing ranger tab. (laughs) Oh no. You were, yeah, you were laid up for like, what, eight months? God. No, it was like, it was, I was only laid up 
for like two months, but then kind of in rehab, it, it, it was probably about eight months. And then, it, you know, it was yeah. very important to me because I'm such a self-righteous piece of shit that I'd be able to max our army physical fitness test. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, so to get back to that, you know, took yeah. another several months and until I could do it, I obviously, you know, self-flagellated and felt, felt pretty bad about who I was. Yeah. What um, is Ranger? What does Ranger mean? Honestly, it is just the, it's the world's best leadership school. It's simply a, it's a course that subjects you to really harsh conditions, many of which are self-imposed in in terms of, you know, it's artificial starvation, it's artificial sleep deprivation, which is to say that you have ranger instructors who don't feed you and make sure that you're getting up to, you know, get after it. And so people get very little sleep, they get very little food. And in that you know, with those stressors, they're doing, you know, mock engagements of the enemy, you know, and, and, and on some level, it's, it's all based on what we just talked about in terms of airborne operational training, right? You, you are, you're, it's, it's habit, it's exposing you to what you're going to see in the battlefield so that you're not, you know, you're able to, to, to deal with a, a hugely stressful situation. And, and it, and I think, you know, my experience the limited like three weeks that I, that I had in, in, in that, you know, preparatory um, training were the best three weeks of my life. I mean, I loved being a part of that, that team mission. And I loved the opportunity that I had to lead it. You know, they, they will stress that the important thing is not necessarily the merits of your decision so much as your capability of making a decision. And you have to rely on the advice of your, your teammates, you know, and, and take their inputs so that you can make the best decision possible. But at the end of the day, when a decision has to be made, you need to make it. And that's what, you know, that's what Ranger School does. And I, I'm also particularly bummed because I had timed it such that I would have been with the first class of females to go through the, the Ranger School course, which I always thought was, you know, I thought that was going to be historic and it, it's proven to be, but wow. that wasn't in the car. And I never had an opportunity to, 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 you know, give it a second shot. And, and now I think the reality is I just don't have it in me, which is a hard thing to admit, but I, I think that's the truth that I just, it's intimidating the prospect of how much of a train up I, I personally would require the fact that I'm now 38. And even at 32, when I tried, I was, I mean, old, older by far from the vast really? majority. Yeah. Really? Wow. Wait, and, and I mean, I, I get the concept of putting yourself to acclimate to this environment and then having to, I assume you're, you're doing missions, so you're doing a lot of physical activity with no sleep and no food and so that if that ever happens, but you were never, you were most likely never going to be in that situation, but they still, you can choose to, to like, take these like courses what like programs yeah Yeah. in part in part because at the end of the day it's a leadership school gotcha i'll tell you what i mean i you know i i I, that's amazing yeah it's it's i'm telling you it was you know yeah it was the it was the most instructive three weeks of my life i will also point out that you know Mm. i'm a judge advocate so my it's a desk job and i loved every single fucking day when they would, you know, wake us up after two hours of sleep, I was ready to fucking go. And 
And I also will point out that, you know, there was a give and take about different skill sets and aptitudes. I had never really gotten good at disassembling a weapon and cleaning it. That shit was new to me. It was, that's not my, my normal routine in the army, but my, you know, the people on my, on my team found that to be so funny. And I was able to assist them in other things that, you know, they like looked after me. You know, it was re- amazing th- to see the way in which different skill sets complemented one another in advancing a mission. And, you know, like my ingenuity at one point was having everyone take their, the clothes, for example, that they have in our rucksack and tape it all up when they weren't using it. So that when we had to do these mandatory layouts, which gave the ranger instructors an opportunity to say, hey, you guys are all jacked up. You're not, you know, uh, dress right dress, which is everyone's the same. By taking tape and making it uniform, we could save so much time by dumping out the rucksack, immediately lining everything up in an identical fashion from person to person. And, you know, that means that you get an extra 10 minutes of sleep, which is crucial. So people loved that, you know, kind of, you know, my little tactic there that mm-hmm. they didn't mind that I could barely fire, you know, an M240 Bravo or didn't know what I was doing in any other, you know, weapon systems context. Couldn't load a radio, all that shit. Weren't you learning that stuff? Absolutely not. Those are not, you know, you'll learn an M4, which is a, a rifle, kind of like the, the, the military grade version of what you might know as an AR-15. Mm-hmm. But, you know, beyond your pistol and your rifle, no, I'm not taught any of that stuff. I'm not a gunner. I'm not a, a, an 11 oh. Bravo, which is infantry. So I don't learn the vast majority of, of weapon systems that are, are really what you're going to see on a, on a battlefield. Right. But you have, you're walking around with a pistol. Yeah. I mean, I understand my pistol enough, but when I, you know, I'm talking about machine guns, oh. there's a two, four, nine or two, yeah, those things. Know. Right. I don't know anything about a grenade launcher. I don't know anything about this, what's called a Claymore mind system. I don't, I don't okay. know that stuff. In and fact, those guys did. And those guys did. And so there was kind of a give and take. What you realize is your fire team, your squad is operating as a single organism. And that was what was so magic about it. We were, we were moving through the woods when I was the squad leader and I was like looking to my left and right. I don't know anything about the army to the extent that I've even given you proper vocab is itself an achievement because so much of the army is still fucking a mystery to, to me. But being in the woods, advancing slowly, you know, towards our objective, I'm just, I was looking around and just watching all of these guys playing their designated roles and we're moving as like a single organism. And my role as the squad leader in that mm-hmm. particular lane, I, I, you know, that's just my role to be the squad leader. I'm going to swap out with someone else who's then going to be the squad leader the next time. We're, we're, each, oh. we're each playing a role. There isn't like a hierarchy. It's hard to explain. It, the hierarchy is the role. Uh-huh. And, that, and that's kind of what I mean before. Don't, don't mistake your rank for talent. You know, you're wearing a rank because you have a job to do. And this is an easier way of transmitting directions on down to the people that are going to execute at the lowest level. But, you know, it's just a, it's right. just a, a, a job. It's a role. Well, but, but you got those roles and you were in those ranks because you had done things to acquire information that made that prepared you to be in that role. That's exactly so, right. Not- but I'll, I'll, get, I'll give you the application that's going to make the most sense to you. Yeah. When you have a CEO who's making 490 times more per year than the lowest level employee, 
that is a misapprehension of the role of an organization because that person is not 490 times better. They just happen to be best equipped to play a slightly different decisional role. And people joke about this all the time, that the army is the most socialist organization designed to support a capitalist structure. But what I would say is I can't wait to get out of the army and take what I've learned there about how to organize men and women and and lead them and all of that stuff and apply it into the world of business. Because that's, that's who I want to be. Those are my soldiers. That's my unit. Instead of the people with whom I work, that's my unit. We're all together as a fire team moving towards an objective. And it just, I never conceived of business like that. And now being in the army, you know, I, well, I've been, you know, appropriately brainwashed. So you've been training for this moment. You're, you're so well positioned to build, start and build or take over businesses because of all of this. You've been doing really intense personal growth work this entire time. I don't really think of the army as being like that, but and it might not be for everybody as much. I know you really take that. You really took it by the reins and tried to squeeze all the value out of it that you could. Yeah. I'll put it this way. I know so much what I want to do with it that I don't even know whether or not I'm flexible enough to put it into just any given activity. I'll tell you what I, what I want to do with it. You know, I, I invested years building this credentialed platform of the type of person I would want to follow. And it was, you could look at it cynically, or you could look at it as almost, you know, my ideal. This is the, t- the person that I would want to follow. And that, that person is first and foremost, really funny. And I think I've checked that box. And then I wanted to follow someone who, if they were going to be in, whether it was business or whether it was in politics, someone who knew the law and had an understanding of when and how to abide by it and when to look for the opportunities that a loophole provides, understood business and understood kind of the legacy of service. Pete Buttigieg said this thing that really resonated with me, which was, yeah, like I joined the military because I felt that you should join the military if you're going to be involved in politics. For me, that was his thing. That, mm-hmm. that com- totally resonated with me, right? Like, oh, yeah. When he I, said that, I thought of you. It's not a cynical ploy. Like, I, I did the things that I thought were important to someone who was going to be in a position of influence, whether it's leading a company or whether it's leading a municipality. And so law degree, business degree, government bachelors, and, and military service, I did those specifically because I wanted to be able to say that I had done those if I was going to be stepping into the ring and trying to get myself, you know, position in, in leading an organization or a municipality. And that's what I wanted to do, you know, whether it ends up being in the business world in Albany or whether it ends up being in the political environment. I come from the capital of New York State and kind of Albany County right outside the city. And I have always been enamored by the prospect of making that the place that I take responsibility for bettering. And that's why I've done this. That's why there's been this kind of almost deliberate 20-year plod towards making sure I was the type of, of, of person that I would respect, that I, 18-year-old Jesse, would want to cast a vote for or would listen to if they directed me to do something in you know, commercial pursuit of an objective. And along the way, I mean, I've done other things that are, are obviously kind of flex my creative juices. So I started a business because that was important for me to actually like put into practice, like the, the training of my, my MBA program. And yeah, tell I've us had, about that. How did you do that while being in the army? I have a, do you remember Pat Carey? Yeah, of course. So Pat, my boy from high school, he got into craft brewing. And 
I was sitting there one day and I was like, we come from a, from a town called New Scotland. You know what would be interesting about that? If we distilled spirits, if, if Scotland, if in Scotland, you've got alcohol that when distilled is called scotch, what would you call alcohol distilled from New Scotland? You know, you call it New Scotch, which the Scotch Whiskey Association found to be completely offensive. And, <laughs> and which is also under the Code of Federal Regulations, largely illegal. That, you know, th that issue having been resolved, and it has uh -huh. been, we're now New Scotland spirits. And we are creating a bourbon, a rye whiskey, a single malt, a corn whiskey, a vodka, a gin, and a rum. And it's with grains distilled from our hometown. And that is just, it's just such a charm to it, Pia. Like when, when we walk around and like the millers up the road from where I live, you know, we're getting, we're getting corn and wheat from them, you know, like we're sourcing grain from the field that Pat and I grew up on. It's just so magic. And like these labels give me an opportunity to wax poetic about, you know, what it was like to grow up in like rural Albany. And I, you know, it's so it's exciting. It's like, it's a product that, that means a lot to me. And, and that has been a blast getting into the craft distilling world because it's just a, you know, it's a cool little industry. That's a, um, that's a lot of uh, liquors to be creating. It sounds like a huge operation and a huge outlay of cash to get started up. It, Are they it all is, made? It is, but I'm also, you know, this is where I was able to flex my skills as an attorney. We contracted away almost all overhead risk. So we work with partner distilleries and then we warehouse elsewhere. I mean, at, okay. at, you could largely say that the actual company that Patrick and I own is basically a, you know, a, a, a vehicle that stores IP. Right. It's our it's our trademarks brand. and it's our yeah, it's our brand. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but you are. But I and I thought and I kind of thought that's what it was. But now that you're saying you're sourcing it from very specific places, you're not really white labeling existing liquors. No, 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 no. We want to do it ourselves. It. Yeah, yeah, we're making. I mean, we started it in 2016. So, in fact, right. the single malt, which we're releasing next year, that'll have been aging for four years. Ah, Okay. But gotcha. that's the point, right? That was the point is to be able uh -huh. to kind of claim some sort of hometown derivation for it. But if that's at least both a marketing vehicle, right? Because uh -huh. it shows kind of my affiliation with the, the, the area and mm -hmm. it, my bona fides as a, as a small business owner, that's like an additional kind of feather in the, in the cap of credentials, right? And I, so I want to be able to leverage that. You have so many feathers in your cap, Jesse. Well, <laughs> I also think you sh this, is, this is what I think this is what should be done, right? Like, you know, you, if, if anything, all I'm doing is being much more deliberate about something that you have done almost as a response to instinct. You know, I, I was thinking about like our, I was thinking about you in college and like, how do you get from Pia in college to Pia now? And it's like, it's such an inevitable trajectory. When I was hanging out with you senior year and then your senior year, the following year, between your impact, the nonprofit events, and Precision, the dance company that you would then use to further your impact events. So good. The, like, like when we were in New York and the, the, the events that you would do for Taste Space, like you kind of almost had this seeming sense of like, how am I going to create a, I mean, to use your, to use your parlance, like how am I going to create this brand and this experience around everything that I do? And it's, I, what I've learned about that is that it's not worth pursuing a project unless part of what you're giving is the experience. I wouldn't just be putting out a liquor, you know, mm -hmm. I, I'd be putting out a feeling, right? Our tagline is nostalgia in a bottle, a good time in a glass. I'm not, anyone can <laughs> distill shit, 
you know, mm -hmm. like I, that's adhering to this sense of place and, 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 and a hometown affiliation. I've, I've watched you create worlds for people. They step into a PIA experience. And, and even like when I kind of think about it, you know, this podcast, it's talking about me within the framework of like, this is a platform that you've given me. And I, I've loved listening to some of these things because I'm like, why the fuck am I listening to two people talking? And the answer is that I'm learning from it. And it's not that I'm just getting easy access to these people. It's that you're providing the outlet. And, and I, I'll tell you, I like, I'm, I'm, uh, I read your book, obviously, you kind of gave me that, that you opportunity to do book. so. Yeah, yeah, it was awesome. And uh, you know, it is just interesting the way it is so seamless for you. Like, I don't think you could do a thing creatively or otherwise that didn't have the stamp of your personality on it. And, you know, to tie this to a, a slightly earlier portion of the conversation, I think that's what's so important about a smile, right? Like in an airborne operation, just smiling at someone changes the whole, the whole ambiance of that, that experience. And it, it's been on the last, God, the last 15 or 15 plus years of my life, I've had multiple opportunities to be a part of a, of a PIA project. And, <laughs> and they've always been fucking awesome. And, uh, Thanks, you know, Jesse. It means a lot. It means a lot. Yeah. What's your you, deal? What's your what's your next your, like your your next trajectory? Well, first, I just want to say you're a good partner on these projects. We've done quite a few projects together, even though I haven't seen you in person in maybe over ten years. I mean, isn't that crazy? I actually haven't been in the same place with you. Is that right? I think so. Well, yeah. That no, that's of at least that's right. yeah, because you haven't been around, but you've wow. always been there to support me and. Yeah, like I said, you even edited my book. You're the best, most anal editor. <laughs> I mean, I had editors and then Jesse was like, can I just go through this and tell you all the things that actually need to be fixed? <laughs> yeah, what's my next move? I don't know. This is all of it. You know, you're just talking about, I think what you're really saying, and you did the same thing in, in the Jesse way, is just really going after the things that you want and are interested in. And if you just are always doing that, you are going to be going after things that are related to each other because we have certain interests just naturally. And you are going to naturally be building toward something that, that, is, that is your brand for, I mean, you know, what other word could it be? This is my brand and all the thing. I've got so many things going on, but they're all kind of the same thing. And that's just because... These are the things that I like, and these are the things that interest me. Like, whereas I, I have like a specific objective, like this orienting principle that I'm, I'm working towards, or maybe even the better way of saying it is, remember when you were a kid and you had those mazes and it was always easier to fix, to figure out the maze if you started at the end? My thought was, all right, I'm going to look at where I want to be. And then I kind of just work backwards. And so the yeah. plan always like, you know, it quickly adjusts when a door closes because I know where I'm headed. Right. But I don't know that you have that. Like, how do you, yeah. how, what, what, how do you, how does all of this stuff come together so cohesively if you aren't marching towards a specific thing? Yeah. Well, what you just described is like really good goal setting. You're just super extreme about it and have been super clear about the very end goal for a lot longer than I have. But I think I've been setting those goals. They've just been adjusting and changing. And I think for a long time, my goal was just not as, it wasn't as specific as yours in terms of what it looked like, but it was very specific in terms of what it felt 
like maybe okay. or what the experience would be. So I don't know exactly what this looks like, but I know I want to be spending my time learning, growing, sharing, teaching while enjoying my life, making lots of money, doing whatever I want every day, having the option to make a decision of what I do each day, every single day. And those two so, things. So I don't know exactly what that looks like, but I've been like trying to figure it out and I've been getting closer and closer to it. And it, you can never like arrive at that because that's not, you don't get there and then it's over. It's more like I basically have that and I could always be having more of it. <laughs> and honestly, I've had some ex existential crises where I've been like, I kind of have all that stuff. Like what else? And then what else is just, I don't know, I guess I'll just keep doing this stuff because I like it. So like you, if I say, if I say, you know, where, who are you in 10 years? You genuinely are open to, you're open to see what that, be, what that is. Yeah, I have to be because I don't know what I think I want that to be. Wow. Um, I know I get really excited and not in an altruistic way. I always say this. But it's like, not because I'm so nice, but it's like I get really excited when I see other people trying to make these things happen for themselves. And I'm like, let me help you. <laughs> I, I, I know about this because I've been doing this. Like, let me help you. And then I get excited when they listen to me and then they do it and then it works. You know, I'm coaching some people right now who really, really listened to me. They trusted me and they did what I said. I mean, I've been coaching them for, you know, almost a year and they're getting all the stuff and they're like, I can't believe how different everything is now. And that is everything. Mwah! That is everything to me. That is so exciting. That is so invigorating and, and inspiring and energizing. So, you know, I don't know what it looks like in 10 years, but I want to be doing that more. <laughs> I just want to do that more. <laughs> I I, I'll tell you, I, so I don't know how I would get out of bed in the morning if I didn't have this objective that I've been working towards. I, you know, it like I'm inspired every day to get out of bed because I do tangibly feel closer to it. Now, mm -hmm. there's a major crisis awaiting at the end if it mm -hmm. doesn't work out right? At that point, I'm going to have that. There's no question. Like I'm setting myself up for the possibility of a serious existential questioning mm. uh, if it doesn't work. But in the meantime, I have been so impressed by what personally, by what this idea has taken me, this otherwise yeah. kind of weak, you know, like physically weak person or what I was and like, what it has turned me into? Because it's just, it's not really me. It's this idea that has inspired this. I need to develop this thing that is worthy of that idea. Jesse, and I, how and long I, are you going to be this person and think that that's not you? Uh, I partially don't claim it because I think on some level. You think it helps you? Well, it's more that I see how quickly it disappears, right? In other words, and this is kind of what I'm talking about. Yeah. I've never been able to, and this is like a flaw, right? This is obviously, in fact, you've identified this before. This is one of the things that I think at some point I need to take like adult responsibility for. What it means is like, I kind of need to find out who I am independent of who I want to be. But in the meantime, who I want to be is such a motivating, you know, it's such a motivating thought yeah. that it, you know, it has done wonders for me, but it, it is what I, I, you know, the thing that's different, I think primarily is look, having been someone who on multiple times has been the recipient of your ethos of, I want to help. I want to build, I want to do something. I mean, whether, you know, back when we were spending more time together, whether it was the radio show, whether it was the radio station, whether it was the taste space and my, 
you know, entrepreneurial ventures right off the bat. It was always one of those things where you seized it and advanced it. And I also remember because you mentioned it, you know, like it was, it was such a surreal experience to, you know, we'd be in a situation where you needed money and within a day or two, like money would just come to you. It was, that was one of my, one of my favorite little tricks that you somehow had up your sleeve. You always kind of had a way to the, you know, to the, the next thing. And I think that's the big difference between our different approaches to, you know, expressing our creativity is that you do it almost as a reflection of who and what you are. I'm, I'm, I'm doing it in the service of what I want to be. And I think there needs to be a bigger balance of like, I need to be more open to the fact that I'm living right now, mm-hmm. as opposed to setting up this thing for what I'm, I'm going to be. But that's definitely not something I want to dedicate too much mental thought to right now. Yeah, well, because it's scary. It's scary as shit. I mean, when you get... <laughs> so be excited for you to see my TED Talk because it's not that I got to that thing, but the thing that I anticipate could happen that I don't want to happen is not that you won't get it, but that you will get it. And then you'll be like, and because I feel like that's the experience I had. And literally that's kind of the pinnacle of my TEDx speech is it's not that it it wasn't something that was going to take 20 years, but it was more like, oh, I think that this is what life, what I think I want life to look like. And this sounds perfect. And then when I got it, very, very early, I was like, oh shit, I don't feel any different. And it kind of freed me up to realize that it's not, you. when you get there, it's not going to feel different. And then what? So you can go after those things, but don't think that when you get there, then you will have arrived because that's not how it works. Right. Um, and you just, cre- and your thing takes so much to get to <laughs> that it's, I mean, you'll get there and be like, oh, it was the journey <laughs> all along. <laughs> I mean, that's what you're going to realize. <laughs> I'm just going to tell you right well, now. <laughs> what I guess, you know, I guess what, what I hope is that, you know, you arrive and then all of a sudden, this thing that you that you now have enables you to do the like the real thing, like your ethical, you know, your ethical imperatives. Like, how do you use it to help people? How do you use it to measurably be better? I think what I now need to do, and again, I'll credit you for having identified this, is on top of being a little bit more present, I also have to spend time developing the moral and ethical framework that makes it all worthwhile. You know, it's like when you reach the heights of your own ambition, or you reach the heights of influence, like, what are you going to do with it? You know, like, and, and I, I think you're right. Like as, as it becomes more tangible, I suddenly have to step back and be like, okay, wait, wh- why was I doing this again? Because there was a reason. And I have to admit, I spend so much time anticipating the path there that, you know, just in talking to you right now, I realize I wonder if I like, should look back at like something I might've written when I was 18 or 19 and try to remind myself why. You oh, know? I, I have the book, the scribbles. <laughs> the scribbles from, the, from our planning session. <laughs> you know what planning session I'm talking I do about. Indeed. <laughs> For your career, I won't say what, what, what we were on, but I've got the scribbles. And it's, I think, I think you're exactly right. I know that's why you're doing it. And I can completely relate to the fact that the tangible piece, not the why, is actually like an easier goal to stay connected to and motivate. 
you know? And actually, because I've spent so much time kind of trying to disconnect from it, I'm very hyper aware of the fact, I was just talking about my friend um, on another episode, that, you know, when I'm not feel when I'm like feeling down, I know what makes me feel better. It's setting a goal and then trying to meet it. That's the easiest right. thing. That's yep. so easy. It's, it's coping. I've, <laughs> it's I, trust so- me, I've used, I've used this path to escape more than one, you know, right. personality deficiencies that I should have probably spent some time addressing. But that doesn't mean that the goal isn't worth going towards. It's just that under like knowing it's kind of almost like the easier path because the reason you're going towards that goal is for the bigger, the bigger reason. And I know all your reasons and you will do those things when you get there. And I would just offer you the fact that that real, the reasons you're doing it really is your goal. And so it's not like you have to figure it out. Like it's there. And also you can be, it's like, you know, uh, be, do have, you can be living that why goal, that values goal from now until you get there. That's really just a step. Like I know you think that is then you getting there, but like, I think you're like, I'm your goal for my goal for you is like way beyond that thing. Like, I think that's just one of the steps and you've just kind of like landed as like, that's the step you're going towards. But I see that as just a pebble on your path. Hmm. You know, if you become the governor, (laughs) like that's not going to be the end for you, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think I, I will also point out that the, you know, the appeal on some level to municipal management is in part because, you know, of a local city is in part because more than anything, especially now, when you watch like cable news and the way in which politics at higher levels, state or even federal, has been so reduced to entertainment. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, in the army, my soldiers are the ones that I can see. I might be tied to this larger sense of mission. But really, in the Army, the things that I care most about are my fellow soldiers. Mm-hmm. And I think that, you know, maybe that's something that, that, that politics particularly could benefit from, which is a sense that, like, if you're really good at organizing people, you know, maybe you shouldn't keep seeking higher and higher validation. Like, maybe the issue is if we start at our cities and build these things at, at this level to be the best possible, you know, kind of drivers of innovation or ecological protection, things like that, then maybe all this other stuff is less and less relevant, which could also be a reflection of the fact that with a $22 trillion national debt, at some point, someone is going to have to acknowledge that we've now unhinged ourselves from like the sanity of money. Money doesn't mean anything. Like Mm -hmm. there will be a point in time on this trajectory that a federal government, a federal level government becomes financially unsustainable. And, and if that's, if that's the case, what is that level and what's the response if that happens? I hope it doesn't happen. I think there's mm-hmm. a federal, there's a value to a federal system, but if it does happen, it's just it us. back to like, the local, right. We're on our own. States. Yep. Yeah. We're, you know. And I'm not saying that that means, oh, and then you have to become a Senator or that that is the path. I'm just saying that I, that is just the, the your goal is just like one piece of the bigger goal. So, sure. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and you'll be doing it the whole way. I just, yeah. think, I, I think that's what you'll decide when you get there. <laughs> well, I just, I just, you know, there's, I guess, kind of two things I will say to the fact that you've got a listenership. So Pia mentioned that I had edited her book. And if you, the listener, want to see more of my contributions, the thing I'm most proud of are my columns in my local newspaper, 
I put out a monthly column and I just, I can't even tell you as narcissistic as this is, my favorite thing to read is me. And uh, if you also would enjoy reading me, you should check it out. In the entertaining. Yes. Entertaining. And then the Altamont, say it, what's it called? The Altamont, the Altamont Enterprise. The Altamont Enterprise. Yeah, Altamont's a, it's a, a town right near me and they have the Altamont Enterprise and Albany County Post. And I wrote this, I wrote this recently, my favorite thing I've written is this indictment of the Confederate flag, not just as a racist symbol, but, that, but as a symbol heralding or paying honor to a group of people who killed American soldiers. I mean, the fact being in the army, I have such a greater sense of like the Confederate flag is being offensive for an entirely different reason. Mm. You know, if you don't realize that it's racist, that's on you. But I can see where people might overlook the extent to which it was a deliberate assault on people who, like me, raised their hand and donned the, the, the uniform. I could not have possibly understood what that means before, you know, I did it. But now mm-hmm. having done it, it's so appalling to look back at that history and see that there were people who, you know, well, frankly, are responsible for the death of more Americans, American soldier, than, than anyone else other than Hitler. And I think actually it's pretty on par. Mm. removing all wow. of the, the deaths of Americans who wore the Confederate, you know, right. you know wow. disregard. So anyway, I think you should read that. Did you read that? Did I send that to you? You didn't send that to me. Oh my God, homie. I got to send that to you. It's, okay. I really like, okay. And then. We'll uh, link to I it think, in the show notes. Oh, perfect. Well, I would appreciate it. And you then, can send me um, all the links, Jesse. I'll link. I'll link to Grandmother's House We Go, which is a little out there. I'll link to the, the one on guns, which was enlightening. Yeah. And then I guess I, you know, the other thing that I, I, I will just say in light of the fact that you've made room for me on your podcast is it is such a testament to you that you have kind of made room in your life for so many people to include me. I, I don't know that there are that many people I feel like family outside of my immediate blood relations, my three sisters, my parents or whatnot. And it is just says so much about you that you like made room for me you know, and like have always been someone that I can call and have always been so eager to render counsel and not pull any punches in giving advice. And I don't, I like, I honestly, it would be weird and maybe even a little fucking lonely if I didn't know that I had someone like you out there. I don't think there's any presence out there that, that replicates the role that you've kind of played as, as a responsible and honest friend. Of, you know, I have lots of people with whom I'm very close, but I've appreciated the extent to which you've taken the time to know me and not been scared by it and have been willing to, you know, kind of be someone who has always had my back. I mean, I can't even tell you how much I appreciate it. And it just says it speaks such volumes about you. Of course, Jesse, you're very important to me. And we are a perfect example to other people that you can stay very close with people you dated and lived with at one point <laughs> and it doesn't have to be a problem <laughs> yeah I, although again that it really is you like when you said that your whole thing is you know like you genuinely want to help people uh, like i can i can attest to the fact that you were put on this planet to find the people that need your help and then to render it 
I've watched it in so many different contexts. It's why I was just so blown away when you did your back in college, when you were doing this impact thing and the microfinancing for, you know, all that, that, that like approach to female empowerment. I, I've, I've been as much a recipient of your constant and incessant care and concern as, as anyone. And I, when I think back on it, like I, I, you know, I was lucky for the time that I had with you in person. And I've been just as lucky in the time that I've had when I've needed you. I mean, I'm telling you, I, I'm like, I'm, I'm very deeply grateful for it. I, I don't know what I would have done without it. Thanks. I don't know what to say. Oh, you, you get you're bashful. <laughs> <laughs> Well, as I just wanted, I just wanted to say that, Pia. I mean, it, I'm, I appreciate it. And hopefully, if this uh, is a project that you like, you know, that you intend to, you know, continue on, I hope to in the next few years give you like an update on whether or not I am still stumbling forward on the on the path and seeing what comes of it. Of course, you will be. You have been very precise on your path this entire time. I mean, when you told me your plan, fifteen years ago I was like that's insane <laughs> but here you are you did all of it and more <laughs> still doing it every every couple years I'd be like are you still in the army <laughs> when is this ending please stop you're like no no I'm still in it I'm doing it I'm racking them up <laughs> I'm jumping out of planes and I was gonna say actually just in response to your Altamont Enterprise writing is that there's a whole other piece to your plan that you I know you know it was there because you do it, but I think it's a much bigger part of it than you seem to really embrace when you explain it at least, which is like the whole media part of it and like local media. And you're, you're such a buff on media. And even if you go into politics, the media section needs you. I mean, I feel like you could really, really do some really big things there that are much needed. I don't yeah, know too the, much the, about it, but the, the thing I, you know, I, I, I realize what I'm not, I don't understand really is social media. The, the thing about media that I think is what, where, where I'm deficient is figuring out how to take ideas and encapsulate it in an easily transmittal, transmittable fashion that can be so truncated. But I think you're. Then you don't know, do it, Jesse. I told you, you, I mean, you were, you love, did, you had a radio show in college. Who does that? podcasts are the radio like you where is your podcast yeah, your, I, i've been saying yeah. that to you for years you would be like that is the perfect medium for you <laughs> yeah well i mean you already do it i mean you've already I, done it it's been a while though when was the last time you did it, it has radio? been a while i i also will say i mean like you've you've seized the technology if you know just you saw already like I would need significant assistance in just loading up a web browser where you can properly hear someone. <laughs> Which is why we're filming, we're recording this on Zoom. <laughs> yeah. But that is the easy part. Let's be honest. That's the very easy <laughs> part and it wouldn't take that long and I'll tell you what to do. Yeah. I mean, when I, when I started this podcast six months ago, I wanted to have a, a co-host and I really wanted you to be it and you were in Afghanistan and now that you're back, I still kind of want you to be my co-host. We'll talk about it later. See if you have time for me sure. and what that would look like. But you got you to gotta get back in the radio. You're so good. And I think that the biggest impact that can be made is through the spread of information and ideas. 
It's the most valuable thing. It's the most impactful thing. And that's why you have these big goals and you haven't been putting your ideas out there the way that you could be because you're, you've been doing all this other stuff in preparation. But I just think um, at some point that's, that's going to be your next move and putting them out in a big way. And you write, and I know you love to write and you're a great writer. So that makes sense. But I just think. Well, I'll tell you what, if you're down to uh, extend me a little bit of that Pia branded assistance, I have a potential idea. I'm sure you and have. About a, oh, a podcast okay. called Me the Mayor. And what it is, is I go around to people in Albany and I'd be like, what would you do as the mayor? And the idea is they come on and they become a part of what is basically my projects. Like I identify people and then we start building support and working together so that you kind of create this de facto conversation about what they would do in a position of influence or more importantly, what they would do if I were in a position of local influence and could assist them on it. And you start getting those ideas out. And so the idea would be, you know, you're listening to me, the mayor with Jesse, that someday could be me, the mayor with the mayor. And if you brought on even the, you know, the local mayor, I right now am so impressed with kind of the job she's done. I would love to have her come on and talk about why things can't be done. I have no idea what those limitations are, but basically present an inner look at what needs to be done, what people want to be done, why it can't be done, and just kind of peel back what basically amount to the personalities that define government. Because that's all it is. It's not like our laws restrict us. Mm-hmm. It's, it's will and personality. The government's just the easiest way of, you know, getting it all out there, putting it into play. So I really want to do that. I and love it. I'll send you a link to one of my articles about the central warehouse. I'm going to knock down this building. There's, it requires a little bit of popular mobilization to make happen. But that's like a thing. And it could be a project that we discuss on the podcast with companion media to like local stories and whatever. So that's, that's definitely something that I want to do when I'm properly positioned in the area to do it. And I would definitely love to talk to you about that. Um, That sounds like an amazing idea. I love it. You're definitely doing it. I hope you do it soon. Well, thank you so much, Jesse, for coming on and sharing all your crazy stories and your real inspiration. I can't wait to see you continue on this journey and hopefully be a part of it. Well, thank you for facilitating an amazing excuse to get to talk to you after I've just so Mm -hmm. recently come back from Afghanistan. This was awesome. Thanks, Jesse. Talk to you soon. Bye. Bye. To read some of Jesse's commentary on the state of the world today, check out Jesse Summers' author page at altamontenterprise.com or just go to the show notes at piasilva.com backslash podcast. I'll also link to the specific article he mentioned about Confederate flags called We Don't Remember History by Erecting Monuments. Also, if you know other entrepreneurs who struggle to put their business in its place and could benefit from hanging out with us, please share this podcast with them. Hard work can only take you so far. It's how you show up in your business that really makes the difference. And to make sure that you don't miss an episode of Show Your Business Who's Boss, hit the subscribe button on your favorite podcast player. Taking inspiration from Jesse today, I challenge you to identify at least one thing you know you could be doing to make your business more successful, but aren't because of a fear. Then ask yourself if you'd rather jump out of a plane in the dark where you have six seconds to open your parachute. Maybe it seems easier in comparison. 
even if it doesn't. Remember that by facing the fear and doing it anyway, that's the only way to grow into a person who might not fear that thing the next time around. And that allows you to make bolder and bolder moves in the future. Try it because that is the perfect next step for you if you want to show your business who's boss. 